On today's season two finale of Effing Shakespeare, we clink glasses with the poet laureate of Houston, Deborah Deep Mouton. She talks about the intersection of poetry and community. She explains how limiting her allotment of news to once a week by having a date night with Trevor Noah keeps her sane. And we petition Hollywood to make movies about breastfeeding moms. The sight gag opportunities are boundless. Plus, Foo considers hosting a lawn maintenance call-in show and Jess turns into a ghost host. Okay, just be quiet for the next hour, okay? And then you'll get this <laughs> That's like an eternity. Eternity. And Jess, are you still there? Yes. Okay. I never, I always heard you guys. <laughs> I never She's left. like, I never left. I never, I never left. left. I never left. I never left. In the yeah. invisibility cloak. Sean asked this girl out, right? You know, <laughs> you know, like, something very simple is like, no, I'm going for it, miss. I'm going, you know, reminding yeah. me that to kind of live that in the moment in that way. Where you were know? you when I was in high school? You know? I am Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is effing Shakespeare. By writers, for writers. Our guest today is poet Deborah Deep Mouton. Among her many distinctions, she was recently honored for her 10 years as founder, slam master, and coach of the Houston VIP National Poetry Slam Team by VIP Arts Houston. She held the number two spot for female slam poet in the world, and she currently sits as Houston's Poet Laureate. But as her many accolades prove, Deep hardly sits for anything. By the age of 19, she released her first poetry collection. She followed that up with two albums of song and spoken word, and over the next several years, competed ceaselessly in slam poetry competitions worldwide as poet and then coach to many successful slam and youth teams. Whether she's in the classroom helping students coax poems from deeply held experience or on the TEDx circuit redefining ambition and the problem of calling each other superwomen, or on the streets of Houston filming verse as balm for a city run through by the rising floodwaters of Harvey, Deep is the closest embodiment to poetry in action I think I've seen. If that favorite metaphor of an alien life form descended to the earth and her first encounter with poetry was through Deep, she would understand poetry is not something written for the quarter sheet of a magazine. She would learn that poetry is something you do. If you've had the privilege of seeing her live, you will no doubt concur she is a force, and you are not dismissed until you reckon with her words, even if that comes long after you've left the venue. Her verse is distinct as it is distinguished, visceral as it is fearless, full as it is vibrant. We are so excited to welcome to the studio for our season two finale, Houston's Poet Laureate, Deep Mouton. Deep, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm going to start taking you places and letting you introduce me. That was magical. <laughs> oh my gosh, your career is crazy. It's a little crazy. insane. When did you know um, poetry was going to be your thing? I think in high school. You know, I tried singing in talent shows and was literally told by my best friend to stop. What? Why? <laughs> she just, I mean, she was a singer. The guy I was dating at the time was an amazing singer, you know, and I, I failed miserably in comparison to the two of them. And my brother is a singer. You know, my family is kind of um, a circus of artists. And so my dad plays classical violin and sings bass. 
my mom is like oh an a alto soprano or something crazy and uh, plays classical piano, you know. So kind of grown up my whole life with music and instrumentation and my brother's an actor and a singer and a comedian. You know, it's just kind of always been the artist in our lane. Mm-hmm. And for me, in, I would say probably in about high school is when I started really settling into the fact that writing was something I had been doing for years and found probably the most joy out of all the things that I was doing there. And and is that, I think I read that you, you came up with the moniker DEEP early on. Is that when you came up with that acronym? Yeah, absolutely. Which stands it was for? Determined to Excel in Everything Promised. Um, I don't know that it meant that then. I think I think I had something much cheesier in mind. When I first came up with the name, I think the, the definition of it probably came late in high school. But I really wanted a cool stage name. You know, because everyone had a stage name and I wanted a cool stage right name. Right on, yeah. And uh, I thought about what are the things that I want people to chant about my work when I'm done. And it was the depth of it, right? Is that it resonated somewhere in them that they had not recognized existed before. And so I think, you know, that's always been something that I've been chasing. Not to demean high schoolers, but that's pretty self-reflective act for a young person. Yeah, I've kind of always been, I don't know, self-reflective, I guess is the best way to say it. You know... I'm the one that like makes a mistake and would sit down and really evaluate like what part I played in the, in the mistake from like a very young age. And so I think that's just kind of always been who I was, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Would you like, like to start off with a little, yeah, a little poetry to... Um, I can read a poem called Release. Start cool. Yeah, that's great. I actually wrote this poem after having uh, a miscarriage and then um, getting pregnant a little bit after that. And uh, my son, it was actually a really difficult pregnancy. Um, I almost lost him a couple times. And so I didn't write anything about him for the whole pregnancy, which is like not like me at all. You know, my daughter has so many poems as the first kid. And I just didn't, I was just because scared. Because you had to guard Yeah, I was, yourself, I was so scared of, of writing something. You know, once you put something on paper, it becomes real and becomes kind of, you know, immortal. And if I wrote about him, yeah, you know, and if I wrote about him, then... If I was to lose him, it would be so much more real. And I just didn't know if I could handle that. Uh, and so instead, I just, I was like, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. And so he got to be almost a year old before I was really, like, willing to put him into a poem. Mm. And so this is the first poem that he kind of shows up in. Definitely has some more coming soon. But, uh, you know, this is kind of the first one I let him live in, in the work. Mm. When I decided to become a mother, people warned me how hard it would be. That having a child is like forever having your heart go wandering around outside your body. But after birthing two hatchlings into the gulf, I have come to know motherhood is not being any less than human. It is more about learning how to envelop the sea. It is watching your skin soft to slick to sucker to cradle, trading your blind spot for the infinity of sight lines each pregnancy's surge of hormones turning you more cephalopod. And if I never believed in evolution, my daughter confirmed me a sea monster. My son made me more Ursula, more sea witch in drag. My confidence has been a constant in camouflage. My spirit has seen the bottom of the ocean more times than I want to admit, but my children give the poor unfortunate of my soul venom and a song. Give me a reason to plot and scheme us into a better sea. 
made me unearth myself from the sand every dawn and dream. Did you know that an octopus has three hearts? One to take all of the rejection life sends, and the other two to make sure that it has something to breathe for. The midnight risings often feel a palpitation. Their tangled sleep is me wrestling with myself. The most annoying parts when I see too much of my ink in them. This world has tried to tell me that I can't have it all. The abyss and the surface too. I respond with my children's constricting laughter. We tighten and choke the doubt that we can be this big and bigger don't you know that a kraken is merely a woman with too much to lose to the sea that if you come for her offspring she will drag you under do you know that a mother has enough strength to swallow a ship whole davy jones is just a woman after too many miscarriages i have a heart in that locker too i know what it's like to be a mile long myth to have to balance being visible with just being a bubble gurgling through self-conscious waters but i i wouldn't trade a limb for them wouldn't beg for bones or legs I I am happy drowning my sadness in their saltwater cure-all. At the end of the day, when we have been stretched to distant oceans, when the pirates of work and school and sleep and this stage have tried to steal our unison chest dump and propulsion, we be devilfish, be the things mermaids fear and envy, make man into nightmare and expectation into sinkhole. We are not hard. We are an eight-legged doomsday, our unity town terror, our tentacles tangling us betwixt one another. Motherhood is a monstrosity waiting to serve. It is a strangling safety. It is knowing you have all the reasons to whirlpool and just waiting for the moment to release. It's one of the truest, truest <laughs> poems yeah. about motherhood. It is. I, I was going to say I have a heart in that locker too. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really feel every, every line speaks to me right to my gut trading your blind spot for the infinity of sight lines yeah. so good i read somewhere that you said performance poetry is as if poetry and theater had a baby yeah <laughs> and i feel like your poems do one thing on the page and a million times more in person yeah what is it about performing that appeals to you as an artist you don't have to wonder with the performing you know, when you read something on paper, you kind of get to interpret it. You get to input where you think the stresses are and the impact. You know, when it comes to performance, the ownership stays in the, with the writer, right? Like, I get mm -hmm. to tell you where the places are, what your heartstrings pull, and I get to tell you where to linger longer, right? I get to build the space, you know, the same way a musician builds the rests, and I get to build all of that control and think about those things so much more intentionally that... I guess it's, it's more my control for the audience instead of the audience being able to control the way that they intake the words. So I would say for me, that's kind of where the performance has always been a place that I love to be. That and, you know, the instant gratification, which is seeing people's mouth open or, you know, <laughs> freak out or be, be affected by the words. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I never thought of it as a, yeah, I never thought of it as a, as a, control, um, a control thing. Yeah. Because there are line breaks and there are commas and there are, there are ways we can structure things, but it does it still leaves yeah. room for the reader and you get to, as I said, people have to reckon with your work. Yeah, you know? there's no you can't just flip the page. Correct, you're sitting in it. Right. Um, right. and I think it's so powerful. Thank you. So powerful. Thank you. Yeah, it's so interesting too because I feel like a lot of writers possibly me included I'm trying to think if I, if I fall into this camp or not they're like you know I write for me and then I send it out into the world and and that you know then then the interpretation is up to the reader or you know the audience 
and some, I feel like playwrights even say that and, and even singers. I, I, we work hard to, to put what we put together. So the fact that the control remains with the artist is actually really appealing. So I'm just guessing, like, do you think all poetry is meant to be performed? I think to a certain extent, you know, I, one of my mentors, Roger Bernard, I have to say his name because he'll get mad at me for my next answer. Um, <laughs> he, he's adamant that there is no such thing as performance poetry, but that all poetry should be performed, that I get that. I completely get it. But there's also poems that I have that they don't work as well in performances as they do on the paper. You know, I have one poem that's, it's three layers of poem on the page. And so a single strikeout, if you read the poem with only the single strikeouts, it's one poem. If you read it with the double strikeouts, it's another poem, mm-hmm. right? Like I can't perform that, right? I mean, I can try to right, yeah. emulate that, but there's, I feel like it's a different canvas, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so for me, it's less about like when I sit down and create, I'm thinking this is going to go on stage and how can I make it go on stage and more of I write something and then evaluate where does this want to live? You know, is this something that is a more visual of a piece that's more of like artwork, right? That I have to sit and sit with it and try to digest it little bit by little bit and look at all the layers and the angles or is this something that immediately impacts me and then maybe that reverberates and then, you know, there's kind of the aftershocks of dealing with it that's a little bit different of an interpretation and a little bit different of an experience. Those pieces for me tend to do better living on stage. I just recently saw the TEDx Houston talk. You said this really powerful thing that gave me so much hope. It's that you said as artists, we need to be the proclaimers of what we want to see in the world to say things we want to be true until they become true. Yes. In the talk, it was especially with regard to reinventing femininity and strength, vulnerability, success. And I think how we talk to each other as women, as other women. Absolutely. I, I selfishly am collecting sort of survival techniques and tactics to get through what we're this time where it doesn't look anything like I want, right. you know, like the stuff that I that I work on that I want to be true until it becomes true. So how, what do we do when we're waiting? Yes. <laughs> I think deciding for yourself what those boundaries are, uh, especially with the world around you, you know, for instance, and I'm just going to use this as one example, I have a media day. By that, I mean it's the only day in which I watch news or intake news information, right? It is Thursday. On Thursdays, I intake the world, right? And all other days, I pretend to not know Good for you. what is happening. And, it's, you know, it's purely because of my own self-care needs of just saying, you know, when things went up. I, I tend to lean towards news, articles, you know, updates, those kind of things as inspiration and fuel for new pieces, especially if they're persona pieces or they're pieces that engage socially. But I got to a point where I couldn't write anything because there was always some new thing, scandal or, you know, right. yeah, you protests. Or, it was just... Yeah. It's just so much that I couldn't get anything out. And I found myself almost feeling silenced by it and being really frustrated. And so for me, it was like, you know, I need to set some really clear boundaries on when I intake, when I output, you know, how much time am I allotting to writing versus how much time am I really intaking all of what's going around me um, and what methods am I intaking. And so I only watch the news or the daily show. That's my personal opinion. I realize that, you know, it's bias and I'm okay with that. Uh, Trevor Noah makes me laugh and makes me happy and we have a relationship and I'm okay with that. 
uh, on Thursdays. Every, every Thursday, me and Trevor, we, you know, we're together. Um, my husband's okay with it. But, you know, so, so I think really setting clear boundaries, I think self-care is a huge piece that I try to push. Anytime I get to talk to young people, it's always about what do you do for you to keep you happy, to keep you sane. You know, it's about prioritizing happiness over um, the way that our society interprets success, Mm -hmm. which is kind of this very like capitalistic money hungry. I need to do all of these things to prove that I'm an amazing, valuable person instead of just being an amazing and valuable person, you know. So I think all of those are kind of ways that we go about being the the right kind of selfish, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that. I think selfish gets a bad rap. I think selfish is at its extreme. It's a very negative thing, but there is a certain level that's just self-preservation. And I feel like if we really outline what that is for ourselves and decide what do we need to be, to continue to be fueled, to go out and do the work that we need to do, that's where we find a really great balance for ourselves. It's a really long answer. I'm sorry. No, that's good. There's gold in all of it. (laughs) Do you feel like the kids that you're talking to are receptive to that? Do Do they buy in? I think for me, it's kind of the thing where I become the gnat in their ear that buzzes so loudly that they might not hear me day one, but by day 50, they just want to give in because they want me to shut up. (laughs) You know, and so I had, I recently had a conversation with a young boy and he, um, he's like, you know, my, my parents want me to be a lawyer and you know, my family wants me to be this and this, and everyone has an idea of what I want to do. And I just, just want to be happy, miss. That's what he said to me. I just want to be happy, miss. And I don't know what that is yet. And I wish people would stop trying to force me into figuring it out my junior year of high school. And I was like, you need to find the thing that makes you happy. And I'm going to tell you, most 35-year-olds have, are, you know, on round two of that, right? Like We we probably abandoned round one a while ago and are trying something new. And so it's unrealistic of us to try to come to you and tell you you have to pick a life goal that's going to be the one thing you pine after for the rest of your life. Right. At 16, 17 years old, you know. So I think every once in a while I land a punch, you know. And then the other <laughs> time I just kind of wildly swing it and hope that someone hits, you know, takes it. Oh, that's good. That's good. That kid's lucky to have you. Uh, I'm going to say, thank God you're an educator. Uh, I, I'm lucky to have him. He's a great kid. Really uh, let's talk a, a little bit more about that. About It just seems that your, your work is bifurcated by your performance. Mm. And then as I was doing research before having you on the show, there was so much community work and yeah. outreach and dedication to, um, you know, prolonging the, or perpetuating the craft with the kids and also reaching more and more people. Yeah. Um, where does that come from? I think, you know, my parents are pastors or mm-hmm. were pastors. So there's always been this kind of humanitarian philanthropic need to, help other people better themselves. I think that's always been birthed in me, um, thanks to them. I think that also for me, you know, I, writing probably saved my life a few times. Mm-hmm. You know, um, actually I actually have a poem that just got published in Black Girl Magic by Haymarket Books that I wrote while I was miscarrying, you know, mm-hmm. in the middle of it. And I think that I probably would not have been able to get through that without a pen and something to write with. You know, like it, it literally has been the thing that made the difference so often that when I look at especially marginal marginalized populations and I see that voicelessness is such a, a feeling and a heaviness of feeling like no one hears you being able to create spaces by which they're heard, um, by which they can speak and have their message really get out. That's something that I'm hugely and wildly passionate about. And so that just fueled me kind of continuing to think about what are more stages that I can make and what are way, more ways that I can integrate and more things that I can build that can live without me that will sustain 
that option for people. Mm-hmm. So impressive. I don't know where all the time comes from. <laughs> no, neither do I. It's okay. It's funny. People have lately asked me, like, how do you do it all? And I was like, what? I don't, you know, it's a very day-by-day thing. It's a very, I have a lot of checklists and a lot of color-coded calendars that try to, like, keep me where I'm supposed yes. to be. But, you know, um, I've always kind of felt this clock ticking in the back of my head mm-hmm. that, that says, like, there you have to rush, you have to push, like, there's only so much time. And I don't really know where that came from. I still don't know where that comes from, but... I think it's been the thing that's always the driving force of like, you only have so much time to do this because there's so much more to do. And so I just, I don't think about how many things I'm doing. I just, I just do it. Right? <laughs> I just, just do it. Um, Cause it's better to have something than nothing at all, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about when you heard or when you, I, I suppose, does someone nominate you for the Houston Poet Laureate? So I actually, you apply. Okay. So the state poet laureate is a nomination. Um, the National Poet Laureate is an appointment. Mm-hmm. The The local level is usually some kind of application process. So it's kind of more on the artist's hand to nominate themselves or, you know, you can't have other people nominate you. I don't think anyone else nominated me but me, though. So uh, I, I did the application the first year and I made it to the finalist. And then um, Dr. Robin Davidson, a great, great woman, she got it instead. So the second time around, I was like, well, I'm, you know, nine months pregnant I don't know if I want to do this I'm like wildly huge you know <laughs> waddling around uh and I was just like you know I'm just gonna shoot my shot like let's just go for it I mean what's the worst that could happen I get a no well I get a new baby out of it right like I just right yeah we're talking with my kid I, mean, I'm not I got losing. a pretty great consolation prize you know uh, and so I I did the application and I actually found out that I was a finalist about a week after giving birth. And so oh, I had neat. this this really, you know, intense cesarean and I had just gotten out of the hospital and was kind of, you know, gently walking back sure. and forth. Yeah, barely, And right? kind of saw the email that said, like, you're a finalist again and we want to do your interview in, in two weeks. And I was like, okay, so we're going to do the interview with stitches in my stomach. Like, this is happening. We're going to do this. You know, breastfeeding the kids Yeah, in the not to mention. It's happening. Right, yeah. And yeah. so, you know, I had a good friend of mine drove me to the interview with the baby in the car. I kind of nursed him and she held him while I was like, you know, in the interview. I was very seated in the interview, you know, like no big performances here. So baby um, boy came in with you? He was sat in the car with a friend. Okay. So okay. not alone. Please don't come get me. Um, he was, he was, you know, with a friend. And, um, and so then, you know, as soon as I was done, I kind of jumped in the car. I was like nursing on the freeway, you know, like it was like right back into mommy mode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and when I found out, he was actually, I just finished nursing him. And I, I was kind of scrolling through my phone while I was rocking him in my arms, trying to put him to sleep. And I saw the email that said I was, you know, it said, I remember reading over the words. I don't remember understanding any of them. You know how that is when like you read something and you don't understand any of them? Yeah. And I was like, congratulations if you name it. Wait, 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 what? And I, I literally had to start over again. And I was like, congratulations. Mayor Sylvester Turner has named you. And I remember leaping to my feet and waking the baby up. <laughs> and my, my parents were staying with me at the time um, to help me kind of with the baby and everything as we transitioned. And I remember screaming, mom, 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 dad, mom. And running up the stairs to their room and kind of being like, oh my God, I'm the phone line. Oh my God. And the baby, you know, at this point is wailing and he doesn't care at all. And I'm just like trying to rock him. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm the like, honey, go back to sleep. I'm the phone Go back to sleep against my rapidly beating heart. You're okay. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, so I know. Awesome. I'm the poet laureate. You have to listen to me now. Right. Soothing. You know, Isn't it just, soothing? 
crazy. And um, I mean, even the announcement, I was definitely late to the announcement trying to nurse the baby upstairs. You nice. know, like, I was like, come on, kid, drink. I got to go. Yeah, gotta you go. can't hurry that up. You know, there's nothing you can not do. It is all. one speed. And they don't care. It. No, they do not give two shits. About your whole life. I was just thinking, like, all of this stuff, like, nursing on the highway and, like, oh, yeah. going into the interview, like, between, you know, that when your baby's that young, like, it's cluster. So you just have, yep. like, you know, you have to be, like, you have to finish this soon because, you know, I've got to go. Yes, <laughs> and, you know. And, like, this should be in movies. Why is this not depicted? I mean, you know, I'm glad, I'm really, really glad that, that you and other people write poetry about it. But yeah. I, I swear there should be like, these are visual gags of like so many women. And it just be, it should be like not only normalized but, and celebrated, but also like, like laughed at in an affectionate way. You know, this is like, this is high comedy. This should be a movie. Jessica, did you forget who makes the movies in Hollywood? <laughs> right? Good point. The tides are turning. I, I will say, though, that I realized where Cried Over Spilled Milk came from. Which is it was a breastfeeding woman who had like worked for an the hour to get an hour, yeah, and the liquid gold spilled. And she cried. To cry. Oh yeah, she um, cried. I cried like, multiple times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, you're yeah. about to. Totally. I, you there's you don't cry. It's like what's yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was one time when um, I think it was our middle kid was. She could only sleep in the car seat. Oh yeah, but she, but you had to nurse her in to sleep, mm-hmm. and so if you, but, <laughs> but you couldn't. So I couldn't like remove her from my breast and put her into the car seat. So I, there's definitely a sight gag moment where like I'm hovered over mm-hmm. a baby who is already buckled <laughs> yes. in, just like coaxing her to drink and yes. fall asleep. Yeah, that's yes, that's like Cone Brothers. Come on, this right, is genius. <laughs> Telling no. me, I laugh every time. Yeah. Totally. Uh, this is neither here nor there, but what sort of interview questions are there? Like, as the poet laureate, you would it's work kinda, to? Um, well, so part of it is a community service project that you have to outline. So for mine, okay. um, it was to create an audio and visual tour of the city of Houston through poetry. So we have mm-hmm. these um, kind of one-minute music video poems that celebrate different sides of town. And so myself and 36 other artists are doing that right now. I'm curating and directing those films. Oh, nice. And so we're probably about six neighborhoods in. Um, We have about six left to go. And so about halfway through. And it's it's really great to just kind of see people who have been doing all of this hard work and all of this writing on a very local level be kind of acknowledged by the city and for us to be able to see them kind of in their neighborhood and in their atmosphere. In the most beautiful way, you know, I told them in my interview before moving to Houston, the only thing I kind of knew was, you know, hip hop videos and Fifth Ward and like people drinking, you know, like scissor sitting on the stoop, you know, so for me, really (laughs) being able to unpack that and say, you know, that's not the Houston that I see every day. Yeah, it lives here and it deserves to live here, but it's a very monolithic understanding of what the city is. And so for us to really be able to create some other avenues that say, you know, yeah, that lives here and so does Montrose, right? Right. And so does, you know, Third Ward and all these really historic areas that that shine in their own way. And how do we pay homage to those things and acknowledge that the difference is what makes them beautiful, you know? Oh, man. Love that. So there, there was that, the... Is that going to be sort of like nationally available or do you have to be in Houston to 
This is reason number 455,000 that you should move to Houston. (laughs) Uh, I would say it's going to be available through social media, so it'll be worldwide. Uh You you should, everyone should be able to see it. Um, We don't have a current release date, but I know it'll be released before I leave for my poet laureate state, which is in April. So it'll be, it'll be coming soon. The next couple months. Neat. Oh, I'm definitely. April's the end of your tenure? Yeah. That's two years? Yeah. Wow. It's been a packed full 10 years, though, I'll tell you that. Yeah, That's man. Great. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Um, wh- what about this intersection of, I, I want to go back to the teaching yeah. and poetry. Um, you know, Jess and I were talking about before the show that it can seem sort of trite um, to say that we learn as much from our students as, you know, we teach them, that mm-hmm. oftentimes it's the other way around. And um, I read a bunch about your interactions with your your Poetry Slam students and um, just wondering what what kind of things you've taken uh, from being in contact with so many young people. Also, in, you know, you're a public school teacher or you're a, a high school English teacher. And right. so you have a lot of contact with kids. I do. Yeah. I, I have contact with them all the time. Yeah. I think that they remind me why I'm compassionate. Uh, they show me new levels of bravery. You know, anything from, miss, I'm going to shoot my shot and ask this girl out, right? You know, <laughs> you know, something very similar is like, no, I'm going for it, miss. I'm going, you know, reminding yeah. me that to kind of live that in the moment in that way, you know, um, they definitely keep me cool. Where you were know? you when I was in high school? You know, I know. You know? Yeah. I, I, you know, I was telling them the other day, I know it's so off track, you can definitely edit this out if you need to, uh, <laughs> that I, I went this whole, like my whole junior year and just like absolutely in love with this guy and, uh, you know, just, just. We were friends, and I didn't try anything. I, I just wanted to say something. I just didn't. And we got to his senior year. He signed my yearbook and said that he had been madly, wildly infatuated with me. And I just remember crying, right? I mean, like, this whole year we could have been together, right? No, Dante, why? Dante. Um, <laughs> of course his name is Dante. Of course his name yeah. is Dante. And, um, and I was telling the kids, I was like, so this is my lesson on why you just shoot your shot. I mean, what is the worst that's going to happen? They're going to say no, but you would always know it would have happened, right? Like, you tried. And so even just saying those things to them reminds me of like, yeah, and you need to too, right? Like, you need to take all chances. Say yes to some things that you're scared of, you know? I think also uh, it makes real kind of the times that we're living in. You know, I work with productive predominantly Latin and Hispanic children. Uh, a lot of them, their families are immigrants. And so I'm very connected to kind of looking at immigration policy and its realistic effects, not just kind of this overarching scare that has seemed to permeate this world, but really talking to students that are like, my parents are going to be deported and I'm going to be here. What are we going to do about that? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think for me, it keeps me plugged in, in the heart. You know, like I think they, our minds can be plugged in one way, but but our hearts are not always plugged in, and so they keep mm-hmm. me plugged in in that way. Um, and then also they just they they remind me of what really is important. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's really easy to get kind of lost in in grandeur at times, but they they ground me, and they're probably some of my biggest supporters. You know, I had one girl brought me this page she had torn out of the magazine at a doctor's office. Don't do this people. Um, <laughs> she tore this page out. It was this article that someone had gotten about me and she saw it and she's like, miss you're famous. Like you're in my magazine. And she's like, Oh my gosh, you could be a writer and be famous, you know? And, right. and that revelation for her, I was like, this is why I do this. Right. That's, they ask me all the time. Why are you here? You're so famous, miss. Why don't you, you know, go, to go somewhere else? <laughs> And I'm like, because I want you to see this. You know, I want you, I want you to see a real life person who 
can be both for her community and can be chasing her own dreams wildly and passionately and and successful because of those two things and and I feel like they need those real world examples so they remind me I need to be the example and and that there's always people watching and I hope that I remind them that there's a way to make their goals tangible and real yeah hmm. so good it really is it's incredibly inspiring oh, thank you. and do you ever feel like do you ever are you ever tempted to write any of their like details you know switching take this detail from that person and then switch it I don't know like do you do they um, ever make their ways into your poems in like very fictionalized way they're never fictionalized they're always just who they are you know <laughs> and typically okay. it's it's more about what I've learned from the moment with them than it is their personal uh -huh. details and so, right. so uh, it's the poem, yours. actually one right. of the poems I'll read uh, today is, is about an interaction with my students but I think it was much more about me coming to an understanding of who I needed to be for them than it was about them, you know? And mm -hmm. so um, I think that I'd rather encourage them to write their own stories than I would to write right. them for them. And sure. so that's, that's my hope is like, if you have a great story, well, you should write it. <laughs> like I shouldn't write that for you. You should write that. And then <laughs> I'll help you get that where it needs to go. But you know, that's your, your story, your life. And I kind of treat my children the same way I've realized is I don't, I don't really write detailed accounts of the crazy things they do because I feel like they, that's kind of their story to tell. And when they're old enough to tell it, if they don't remember, I'll remind them. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and yeah. that's kind of their story to write. And so that's I kind good. of shy away from that as well. Yeah. Can we hear that poem? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, it's all called, it's called Willful Right to Carry. Uh, it's still kind of a newer piece. When I first became a teacher, I said I would model myself after Whoopi Goldberg's character in Serafina an unrelenting rebel in the fight against apartheid during the worst tensions in South Africa. Her classroom was the truth without consequences until the moment they came to take her away. I never thought my story would end as badly as hers, a missing body and a long list of names. The truth always seems easy and abstract until the heavy sets in. I don't know which one held more weight, knowing so many of my students may be deported or that I couldn't keep them safe even when they were with me. My classroom wanted to be a bunker, but fell short as soon as they entered the plate glass door. As soon as the tired and scared followed them in, I tried to play friendly, fired like the whole world wasn't gunning for them. But when you are a dreamer in an open carry state, it's hard to read about the sky without being swallowed in its darkness. It's hard to call a place home when there's no one left to fill it. I am no longer naive enough to believe I am the answer, but I can be the hope. So the first day of the school announced we would practice what would happen if the bullets finally loosed. I decided not to teach, but to listen. I played the training videos and tuned into their faces, watched the fear surround them send the same chill ice had left a thousand times, watched their hands raised one by one to ask who would come to claim them? When is it better to run and hide when all we have known is fight? When the intercom buzzed, there was no more time to balance the what ifs at the door. The danger was the person next to them and the guard outside. My students' hearts sank to an abyss fear couldn't reach, stood and ran to make their bodies a brown huddled mass against the wall, as if walls weren't their own kind of monster. So close we could taste each other's breath. We whispered in the quiet, waited for the ghoul of administration to walk the halls and say we weren't corpses, but still enough to live their eyes wondering what we will do if the barricades don't work, if they can no longer hide, if they ask them their names or for their papers. So I tell them, Mijos, my body is a force field man has yet to break. 
My husband and children have already said their goodbyes. I have resolved that your future is more beautiful than mine could ever be. I tell them there is a person here that loves you. My heart is a home they will never pull you from. There is no truth without consequence, no hope without a vessel. And I am a willing conduit to stand in the gap of the door to sail over my body. These are my children in my most honest voice. And if the evil has to choose between on us on who to snatch, I am willing to go missing you I'm gonna need a moment <laughs> yeah me too I'm without words <laughs> you know I think um, it's a hard place to be a teacher in America right now probably in yeah. anywhere but I think you know there are so many teachers who stand with me that that you know, these are our children. Like, mm -hmm. like, and not that, you know, this grand, like, we are the world, kind of, these are our children, but, like, these, you know, my kids call me Mama D. You know, mm -hmm. like, these are my kids, and so much of what I would do is predicated on their success and mm -hmm. is predicated on them having a life to live, and if I didn't think that they were going to be granted a life, I wouldn't pour so many hours into creating a lesson that stimulates them, right? Um, mm -hmm. And we're kind of being forced at this time to be in a position where we have to pick at times between our comfort and our ability of just maintaining the status quo and and really standing up and saying like these are this is what's happening and we have to confront it head on and and for our students also saying that no matter what this is going to be the space that we say is going to be safe even though no one else says it is you know and this was actually a conversation i had with my students um and i wrote the poem afterwards and after telling them this they kind of you know there was a lot of tears in the room and one kid raised his hand and he said, even me, miss, you know, and he was, he's one of my troublemakers. Right. And he said, even me. And I said, even you, sweetie, even you, you know, and, and it was just a moment where we could, um, see that, you know, despite if you got a detention today, I love you, you know, I care about you and, and all of that is built into how I love you. And, mm -hmm. and it's not, per, you know, there's nothing that you can do physically to change that there's a love that I have for you that that prioritizes your life over mine you know mm -hmm. we had um Aya Kunli Palomo yeah. on the show and um we spent some time talking about where to find hope and 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 his work with kids he he had gone to um what competition was it that he went to do you remember Jess uh, maybe um, it was the Brave New Voices yeah, competition it probably was yeah yeah That's and nice. he said he said, you know, we're going to be all right because mm -hmm. there's kids out here who are who are open and listening and working oh, and, yeah. and get it. You know, we're going to be all right. Oh, yeah. I think sometimes we get into hand wringing. It's easy to do, um, but it's all the more. Right, because the adults are them. doing such a bad job. The, yeah, <laughs> the adults are doing a <laughs> shitty job. Yeah. Right. Um, for the most part, I mean. I'm like, we're trying to come back. The, the, the people in power. <laughs> right. The people in power are doing a terrible job. Yeah. But if, yeah, yeah, but his point was if we listen to them, you know. Absolutely. We have to protect them if we're going to be able to hear their voices. Yeah, I mean, and we have to educate <laughs> like, them, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, blind zeal zealousness, that's not the word. You know what I mean? Blind zeal. There it is. There we go. There it is. There blind zeal <laughs> doesn't do anything for us. I think, yeah. you know, we have yeah. to be in a position right. where. I constantly tell my students, they ask me, you know, what do you think about it? I'm like, I don't know what I think. It doesn't matter what I think. What I think does not matter. What matters is that I'm pushing you to a place where you can make a definitive decision for yourself. 
Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if I tell you what I think, you'll just buy into that because you love me, you care about me, you like me, whatever. That's not helping. I want you to get into a place right. where you can evaluate the world around you and say, this is how I stand and make a stand for that thing. Whether I agree with you or not, it's, yeah. it's a stand, and that's what I need you. You know, I need you there. Yeah. Can we just give you a microphone and you could tell the whole world that? Yeah, I would love that. Let's do that. Yes. I like that idea. <laughs> is there something you wish you'd known about writing for a living that no one told you before? I want to say, I guess for me is a couple of things. One, life comes at you fast. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like writing is such a solitary thing that at times you kind of get in the doldrums of like, submit rejected, submit rejected, submit rejected. And then you hit this patch where it's like, and everything says yes at the same time, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, <laughs> and so for me, you know, it's been a little hard being multi-talented, you know, um, and, and having, you know, a project that I'm directing while I'm writing something, while, you know, some big stage production, while I'm trying to publish poetry, while I'm teaching, while I'm holding a child, you know, mm-hmm. it, it can become really overwhelming. And so self-care, 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 you know, that would be one of my big things of just saying, like, I wish people had told me how important it is mm-hmm. to schedule time for a pedicure, you know, to mm-hmm. have a glass of wine, sure. to lay in a hammock, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, yeah. those things are necessary to be able to get up and keep doing the work that you're doing. And so... That would probably be the one thing that I don't think people stressed enough for me. Our last section is the books for what ails you section. Jess, you want to start? If on Halloween we handed out books instead of candy, what books would you stock up on to hand out to the trick-or-treaters? Which is a great idea. So there's part, I know. Of, enough in time. there's part of me that's like, the books I would give out are not appropriate for children. <laughs> and so there's, that's the dark like what? part of this. I would probably give out a copy of Stephen King's Misery to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably not the right answer. Yeah. Here, child, learn what hobbling is. Yeah, like, that's probably not a good idea. Um, so yeah, that you know, the two books that have probably troubled me the most, Stephen King's Misery and the movie, Troubling, that one was more enjoyable, troubling. Um, and it, because it's terrifying, right? Like, it's absolutely <laughs> terrifying. Uh, at a young age, I was scarred by it, and Stephen King needs to pay for my counseling. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, those two, I would say, you know, for Halloween, that's what I give the children. Okay. Scary clowns. They are perfect women. Halloween books. You know? Season. Yeah. What book were you reading yeah. that made you late to something because you couldn't stop reading it? The last book that made me late was Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. Oh, I'm not going to lie to you. I, gotta put it on I could not stop reading it and laughing loudly uh, in the most inappropriate ways. And so thank you. That book's been in my library queue for like two years. You should I just move should it probably to the buy top. It. You should move it to the top. <laughs> no, you're waiting for somebody to turn it in. No, right? I'm waiting. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm like on yeah. a waiting list. Yeah. yeah. I'm like... It started at like, you know, 700 or something. I should just buy it. It's probably like out in paperback. <laughs> it is so worth it. You know, I, bu- I just bought it straight out, not knowing anything about it. I bought it and I, I have tried to lend it and get it back from people as many times as possible. So it's a great book. What's your favorite book to teach to aspiring or young writers? I guess for me, I'll split it. I'll give you one poetry book and one fiction book. 
I write a little bit of both. I don't really advertise that, but um, I need Ooh, to start advertising more. I want to read some of the fiction. Yeah, I actually got a fiction yeah. piece published in Houston Noir. It's a collection coming out next year. Yeah, um, I saw that you were that was coming out, but I didn't know it was going to be fiction. It is a fiction piece. You it's crafty person. I'm telling you, it's a fiction. I'm actually working on some memoir pieces now too, and some nonfiction, creative nonfiction. So, I've actually not been writing poetry like the last week or so. But um, we uh poem books books. I would say Citizen by. Uh, Claudia Rankin for mm-hmm. poetry. I love the mixed genre, and she's just on so timely. Yeah. I don't know. She's just amazing. And then I'm going to go classic on the book and say Lord of the Flies. I am. Wow. I teach it, yeah. and I yeah. love teaching it um, because the surprise endings and because the kids think it's super boring, and then they're, like, all wrapped up in it by, like, you know, chapter yeah. five. They're, they're enthralled, and I love the commentary, um, I think it's I think it's actually fairly timely too on thinking about humanity and the ways that we turn um, and can turn for such trivial reasons. Mm-hmm. And so those are I would say are my two that I love to teach with. It will never not be timely. No. Yes, <laughs> that's the kind of side too, but right? It, it is, but we're human. <laughs> for better, for better or worse. Yeah. For better, for worse, right? Uh, what book on craft do you go to if you hit a wall? Uh, so for me, I love The Poet's Companion by Kim. I'm going to mess her name up. And, so she's listening. Oh, Adazon. Come on, yeah. say it. A, I, it's like A-D, Adonazio. but the Z somewhere. Yes, Adonazio, Adonazio is what I'm going to say. It's how you say it. What's, it's it's, what's the name again? Kim Adonazio. I meant that I didn't mean to oh, okay, like, put you on the spot to say no, the name again. The it's title. fine. Uh, the book is called The Poet's Companion. The Poet's Companion. She also has another book called Ordinary Genius. And both of them are kind of craft books on um, just re-sparking like themes and they give you passages to kind of read and, and kind of be, you know, spark from there. And then they give you prompts as well. So oh, I kind of keep those as like the fail safe. And also lately I've been going on to like submittable and just looking for random calls on things that I haven't written about and taking those as mm. like the chance of like write something oh, that's new. that's such a good craft note. Yeah, I mean, because yeah, if it turns into something great, I have somewhere to submit it. And if it doesn't, then okay. No one was looking for it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right, um, well, it's just a good exercise, yeah. yeah. So I just wrote a fiction story that's reinventing one of the fairy tales as a story told by a person of color. Oh, so nice. what, um, what story did you do? I redid King Midas. Yeah, mm. so thinking about it like King Midas in the hood, like, like <laughs> I don't know, it was different, it was, but it was fun to write, and I feel like those are the things you need. Like when you're, for me, writer's block doesn't exist. It's just us having re- unrealistic expectations of what we are putting down, right? And not just letting the writing be the writing. Yep. And so, if you can find something that lets you do that, I think that's great. Yeah, very well. Move on. Our book that you read that gave you permission to write. I can't say that there's a whole book, but I will say there's a poem. Okay. So, uh, Power by Audre Lorde. That was the one. That was the one. That was the one that said I could say anything the way that I needed to say it, and my audience would just have to come along. Yes. Right? Like, that that poem for me broke down so many walls, and I've read it over and over and over again, and it, it never gets old. It lives in your poetry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Deep, we could have 400 conversations. I feel like we could do 400 episodes with you. I'm just saying, get, like, another Yeah, now that we, and... we could have a separate, whole separate one for fiction. Yes. You know? Thank you so, so much, much for coming on the show. No, thank you for having me. This has been a blast. Effing Shakespeare is brought to you on the backs of the harried, unpaid, and not-quite-starving artists that make up Bloomsday Literary and also the good people at Houston Creative Space. 
photography, video, and fine art. Find all things creative at Houston Creative Space. And buy Audible. Stop angry tweeting in traffic. I'm looking at you, Ford Fusion, going west on I-10. Listen to us, and then when you're done, listen to an audiobook from Audible. The title we recommend is Rachel Cusk's exceptional trilogy, beginning with book one, Outline. Effing Shakespeare listeners get a free title with a new membership. Go to audibletrial.com slash Shakespeare and read more widely today. For one minute. For lawn yeah. maintenance. Yes. We've got a commercial break for lawn maintenance. I, I get this is where you like hit the, have you ever had a lawn? Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> is your lawn in need of maintenance? Never tried to get that nasty crabgrass out of it. 